As I said, it's my fourth monograph uh, on the popular religion and culture of Uttarakhand, which is a new state in the western Himalayas of North India. And most of what you will be seeing is in the district that's labeled Uttarkashi there, uh, at the headwaters of the Tones River. It's all around in this area. That's Himachal Pradesh, this is Tibet. In this book, I will be focusing, and by the way, one of the most fascinating things about the region is the architecture, but we won't be saying too much about it. I'll be focusing on the traditional polity of the area. It is quite unusual. I have to stand. I can't hold this. Yeah. But I'll have to get up and down because my student assistant didn't quite get the technology right, so I'm going to be jumping up to show you the different slides. Actually, forget that. If you could unplug it. I can just move it closer, so I can, that's what this is because I need to close it. The, uh, I'll be focusing on the traditional polity of the area, which is quite unusual. The landscape is divided up among local deities who jealously and often violently protect their territories from incursion by the others. Time is ordered by the gods' festivals in which every household participates. The constituent groups of the local social structure, the castes, are defined in terms of their relationships to these deities, for whom they act as priests, ministers, patrons, soldiers, and servants. Important local decisions are made in the temple compound by a council of elders and must be ratified by the god's oracle. The deity has the power to appoint and dismiss officers, confiscate property, and levy fines. He hears civil and sometimes criminal cases, and then, through his oracle, enforces his judgment usually by compelling the disputants to reach a compromise. Here's how Peter's, my colleague Peter Sutherland put it in his unpublished Oxford doctoral dissertation. Quote, In personal matters, divine kings diagnose misfortune, heal sickness, welcome brides, bless firstborn males, settle legal disputes, and mete out punishment. In communal matters, they select new temple officials, formulate group policy, distribute grazing and irrigation rights, define territory, fix dates for festivals, issue invitations to other gods, engage in diplomatic relations, and formerly waged war. In cosmic matters, divine kings control the weather, ensure the fertility of crops and flocks, protect against demonic disorder, maintain the presence of life-giving shakti in their domains, and predict the course of the year. Kinnar. Chitkul Sangla. In short, these valleys are to a considerable extent ruled by divine kings with powers that are well-defined and often used, and therein lies a problem. It is difficult for a secular intellectual to conceive of a deity as an authentic agent. Such an intellectual might not object were I to describe gods as fictive persons, collective representations, or symbols of something else. However, the idea of attributing agency to them is bound to evoke resistance in many quarters. Indeed, an anonymous reviewer for the Journal of Asian Studies criticized me several years back for what she called my distractingly literal way of writing about deities as if they were agents who spoke, adjudicated disputes, punished wrongdoers, and so on. Uh, she, I, who knows who it was, he, she suggested that these were essentially symbolic events that it would best be best for me to acknowledge that the gods do not really exist, and that I should write more plausibly about the ways in which local people, quote, use faith in the deity to reach consensus and settle disputes, close quote, as if the category of faith were unproblematic. 
As often happens, this criticism spurred me to develop my argument further, and therefore the anonymous reviewer has my heartfelt thanks. <laughs> Clearly there is a gulf between the understandings of local actors and the conventional models of social science. How can I write about the culture and worldview of these Western Himalayan people without making them seem backward and superstitious? How can I analyze the way in which they construct a world of meaning and significance, a world in which deities are prominent actors, without implicitly assuming that their understandings are mystified or deluded? My solution to the problem draws on a number of related ideas. I begin with Ron Inden's notion of complex agency. Inden's overall goal is to develop a theory that can account for more complex collective agents, families, councils, sects, and above all, polities. His project contrasts with mainstream anthropological analyses of kingship, both divine and secular, which subordinate human agency to a reified super-agent called society. Nowadays, one thinks of Latour's critique of Durkheimian sociology. He relies on historical evidence to describe the processes through which the complex agency of early medieval Indian polities and their constituent groups was articulated. In so doing, he explicitly confronts the problem of treating deities as agents. I quote him at length. This is from Indian, Imagining India. It's the last chapter. But I will also be dealing with some agents, to wit the gods Vishnu and Shiva, whom some might wish to dismiss as agents. I am going to assume, however, that such agents, whose very existence may be contested, may, in a sense, be real. The persons and institutions of a community may indeed attribute a great deal of, or even a determining power, to a god or gods, ancestors, ghosts, to the state, to reason, to law, to the market, to society, to the party, to the crown, to the people. We may take such agents to be real to the extent that complexes of discursive and non-discursive practices constitute and perpetuate them, even if some would deny their reality. Indeed, some of the most important quarrels in history have been about such larger-than-life agents." Close quote. The notion of complex agency really should not cause any alarm. It is consistent with the notion of group intentions as developed by the philosopher Tuomela, who has persuasively argued that collective intentionality is consistent with a theory of social action that is both realist and individualist. Indeed, for him, groups have no ontological status beyond the sum total of their individual members. And yet, group intentionality is something other than the sum of the individual intentions of the members of the group. Another philosopher, John Searle, also insists that some notion of complex agency is required for a realist theory of culture and society, and once again this is hardly a mystical endeavor, as Searle is a committed materialist. Let me hasten to add that I subscribe neither to Tuomela's methodological individualism nor to Searle's materialism. My point is simply that the idea of complex agency is consistent with, and according to some required by, a range of philosophical positions that are neither mystical nor religious. A related notion would be that of distributed cognition, as developed by the anthropologist Hutchins in his classic 1995 story and if, uh, uh, study. And if you remember the introduction to that study, the, somebody's landing a plane, and he says, well, where does the cognition uh, occur for the landing of the plane? It is distributed between the pilot, the person in the control tower, and the computer. It's, none of them is sort of 
cognizing uh, as an individual. It's distributed. Um, several, so there are, I've already introduced several terms. Complex agency, distributive agency, collective intention. Ultimately, I will settle for Inden's notion of complex agency because when I gave this chapter of this paper in Shimla at the Institute uh, a few months ago, a couple of my female colleagues stood up and said, Sachs, this isn't collective intentionality at all. What about the women? And of course, it's true that here, as in many other uh, institutes, the women have little or no public role, but they have quite a powerful role within the household when some of these decisions are being made, and therefore I think complex agency, I would retain that term because that will enable you to capture the hierarchical nature of the uh, agency. What all these ideas have in common is that they are reactions to or refutations of individualist theories of cognition, agency, and intentionality. They locate these processes firmly in social life. Because gods are central to my ideas, one might assume that complex agency is something supernatural or mystical. This is not true at all. In fact, we have dealings with complex agents all the time. Universities, trade unions, and bridge clubs are all explicitly designed by their constituencies to accomplish collective purposes. If business corporations can unproblematically be considered persons, according to the regnant ideology of individualism in the West, then surely we can consider deities as agents, according to the ideology of Hindus. I suggest that the regional gods of the Western Himalaya can also be fruitfully analyzed as complex agents, and in my book I will analyze the processes through which they are so constituted, and their constituents' collective intentions are defined, pursued, contested, and sometimes thwarted. It will be objected that an agent must have consciousness or mind, and that the gods of Ravai therefore don't count, since they are non-empirical beings. Such a refusal to treat another culture's ontology seriously or respectfully is precisely the sort of arrogance that anthropologists are determined to resist. But beyond that, there are at least two good answers to the objection. The first is that even if I were to attribute consciousness to the gods of Ravai, this would be consistent with certain influential hypotheses in cognitive science and the philosophy of mind, particularly those associated with, with the work of Daniel Dennett. Dennett is opposed to what he calls the destructive influence of the Cartesian mind-body dualism. Its central mistake, he writes, quote, is in supposing that the work of consciousness is a distinct sort of work different from the work done by the merely unconscious information processing modules in the brain, work done by a distinct faculty, a salient add-on, that might in principle be subtracted, leading a cognitively competent but entirely unconscious zombie. Close quote. In other words, according to Dennett, consciousness exists, but it is not localized. It cannot be found in the pituitary gland or anywhere else. In Dennett's words, consciousness has no specific medium. Rather, it is distributive, which I take to be Dennett's central point. One might thus suggest that complex agents like governments, gods, and gas fitters' unions exhibit a form of consciousness that is not dissimilar to human forms of consciousness, with which we are more familiar. Again, going along with Dennett's model, one difference would be that a complex agent's consciousness exists at a higher level of integration. If human consciousness is nothing other than the articulation of a vast number of information processing modules in the brain, that's Dennett, 
then the consciousness of a complex agent would consist in the articulation of the consciousnesses of a number of human agents. We even evaluate both kinds of agency in similar ways, by asking questions, gazing, gauging intentions, and then analyzing the degree to which the two match up. In other words, if you want to know if the god is an agent, you ask him, who are you? And he tells you. If you ask him a question, he answers. Um, the god's answers to my questions may sometimes be unclear. I may not always be able to accurately gauge his intentions. There might seem to be endless opportunities for dissimulation and deceit. <coughs> but this situation is in principle no different from the situation I encounter in attempting to evaluate the consciousness of one of my colleagues. And in fact, this is precisely what I intend to do today, to have a close, not to uh, examine the intentions of my colleagues, but to have a close look at oracular speech amongst these gods and to see what light this throws on the idea of complex agency. So let's move a bit further into the ethnography. It would be fair to say that nearly all public rituals in this region of the Himalayas require possession, as you heard on Wednesday, and are regarded as failures if it does not occur. This is because their purpose is to honor the gods who are invited to come and accept praise, offerings, vows, and so forth. The gods, in turn, signal their presence by possessing human beings, and when this fails to occur, <coughs> it can only mean that they are displeased or angry, or that there has been a mistake in the performance of the ritual. I use the word oracle rather than medium for the person who is possessed, because usually the god is asked to communicate some information or pronounce a blessing through him or her. It is believed that the oracle cannot remember what happened during trance, because he was not there. The deity was temporarily inhabiting his body. The ideology of absence, in my title, refers to the... Uh, refers to the... Where am I? Moral and epistemic responsibility for what is said or done uh, to the removal of the uh, moral and epistemic responsibility for what was said or done from the human being whose body speaks or acts uh, to the possessing being that is the ostensible speaker and actor. And generations of anthropologists, psychiatrists, and others have followed Lewis's highly influential argument that this facilitates criticism, rebellion, reform, and so on. This all raises basic questions about identity, intentionality, and agency. When an oracle is possessed by a god or goddess who speaks, who heals, who settles the dispute, uh, one of my colleagues from Heidelberg has difficulties with such questions which she regards as typical of anthropologists and other outsiders. She thinks that they impose an alien ontology on possession and the various practices associated with it, and argues that if we wish to truly understand these phenomena, we should take the natives at their word, so that the answer to the question I posed would be, it is the God who speaks, the God who heals, and the God who settles disputes. I think this is the wrong way to go. I think that the ideology of absence, so typical of many cultures, gives rise to a number of internal contradictions that are recognized even by those who are actively involved in possession practices. As my use of the term ideology is meant to suggest, I am more than a little skeptical about claims that it is always and only the god who speaks, with the implication that the oracle never seeks to advance his or her own material interests. Moreover, I find it problematic to assert that the gods of Uttarakhand are literally speaking, healing, or settling disputes through their oracles. This is theological and not scientific language. 
but to flatly deny that the God speaks brings me into conflict with a central anthropological maxim, which is that one should respect the beliefs of one's informants and try to understand their internal logic. Is there a way to describe and analyze these forms of oracular speech that is consistent both with the famous native points of view and with rational social theory? I think that the notion of complex agency represents such a way. So let's go a bit more further into the, I promised you I'd go into the ethnography, we're not there, we're really going to get there now. Uh, back to Ravai, the location of the divine kingdoms that I've been studying for 25 years. Um, as I already noted, the gods are regarded as rulers, and people refer to them as kings, or raja. Local castes are defined in terms of their service relationship to these divine kings, as priests, ministers, patrons, soldiers, and servants. Like human kings, they jealously, and sometimes violently, protect their territories from incursion by rival neighboring gods. They regularly patrol the borders of their territories, and if a neighboring king intrudes, there is likely to be a violent confrontation. So here he's being taken on his palanquin. This will be the cover of the book, for sure. I love this picture. There's one of them, you see there's the sword, there's a, a murti, a small statue inside this box, and he's carried around uh, his, the borders of his territory. My book will focus on three deities. The central character will be the divine king Karana, who appears as a yogi, a renouncer with no possessions. Here is his temple. Secondly, his enemy, Doyodhana, who is rather fierce and cruel, and very strongly associated with high-altitude pastoralism. And finally, the local god, Pokudevta, who makes no territorial claims, and is th that's his oracle, who makes no territorial claims, and is therefore free to wander throughout the region. You will hear much more about all three of these gods shortly. Since some of you are South Asianists, you will want to know about the connections between Karna and Duryodhana and their relation to Mahabharata. In fact, I discovered this valley in the context of a previous research project on performances of Mahabharata in the hills. But this is another topic, and I'm not going to talk about it today, because it would take us too far away from the idea of complex agency. <clears throat> Many aspects of the old system of divine kingship have vanished. These days, the inhabitants of neighboring divine kingdoms are more likely to be partners in matrimony or business than to be enemies, and electoral politics have replaced regional feuding as the main area of public contestation. Still, the oracular functions of the divine kings persist. People are still deeply devoted to the divine king of their particular territory. They still go to him for help with chronic illness, infertility, or misfortune. They still consult him when there is not enough rain or when there is too much. The gods' oracles are called mali, literally gardeners. The procedure for consulting the god is fairly simple. The god's oracle is summoned to the temple. The musicians play a drum and gong while reciting the god's mantra. Uh, and the deity manifests himself in the oracle through forms of speech and movement that are distinctive for each god, after which he listens to his his subjects' problems, explains their causes, uh, uh, sometimes suggests solutions, and when necessary, passes judgments on disputes. The atmosphere 
during such rituals called julana, literally swinging the god, is very striking. The hypnotic beating of the drums and recitation of mantras by the priests, the awe-filled, hushed mood of expectancy among the public as they wait to hear the pronouncements of their divine king, and the thrill of hearing his voice. The oracles are selected by the community and can be removed from office if they misbehave. And once again, there seem to be certain contradictions arising from the ideology of absence. For example, although almost no one would question the authenticity of oracular trance, I have been present several times when persons whose quarrels were about to be decided had a private word with the oracle, usually the evening before the god was consulted. By hedging their bets in this way, the practitioners indicate, at least implicitly, that the ideology of absence has its limits. And I've dropped out, I can give you lots of examples of this sort of thing, where in fact the oracle indicates quite clearly that they knew what was said later. So their consciousness was not, or where oracles seem to use trances to further their personal agendas. And so I return to the question with which I started. When an oracle is possessed by a god or goddess, who speaks, who heals, who settles disputes? My argument is that when the oracle of, the, of a divine king in the Rwanda area speaks, he articulates the complex agency of the community. It is based on my observations of these oracles over nearly 20 years. I have noticed that when disputes are involved, the god makes a clear and unambiguous judgment only when the quarreling parties have already reached a compromise or are very close to doing so. In this sense, he ratifies a decision that has already been taken and gives it the stamp of his authority. But if the oracle is asked to make a decision when the parties are still quarreling, he will tell them to go back and discuss the matter further, or he will fine them both, or he will say nothing. These tiny kingdoms were formerly in a state of more or less perpetual conflict with one another, and their need for mutual defense, combined with the typical features of Himalayan pastoralism, meant that villagers were highly dependent upon each other. From a functionalist point of view, it makes sense that the local deity, as the highest expression of social solidarity, would also articulate, as it were, the collective voice of the community. And that is exactly what you will see in here, in the examples I'm about to show you. The most evident feature of oracular speech is that the oracle emphasizes the theme of unity and solidarity, over and over and over again. This unity and solidarity is a prerequisite. The god cannot settle dispute, he cannot diagnose the disease, he cannot predict the future, and he cannot stop the rain, unless and until his subjects are unified. He is the voice of the people, the vox populi, and can only speak authoritatively when his subjects are united. So let's move on to my examples. There are four of them. First, a more or less standard oracular consultation with the god Karna. Second, a more ambiguous set of statements by the oracle of the god Duryodhana. Third, a failed oracular consultation by the oracle of Poku. And finally, an oracular pronouncement that made the headlines in the newspapers when the oracle of Poku was pitted against the chief minister of Uttarakhand in September 2011. My first example comes from 2002 when I saw my first oracular session. So here are the photos. When the oracle is possessed, his jineo is turned around, he's put, uh, they put ashes on him, you ask, well, why is Karna a yogi? And they say it's because when, uh, when he went to get instruction from Rama Jamadagnya, he disguised himself as a brahmachari, effectively <coughs> as a kind of yogi figure. 
Here again doing this rice oracle, throwing the grains in the ground. There's various other ritual aspects here. I don't have time to explain it all. That's the vizier whom you saw last time also. These are two of my main informants. The oracle, the vizier, who is the human administrator of the cult. Um, in many ways, it was a typical oracular consultation. There was a general problem, lack of rain. And so the vizier called the drummers and the oracle, and together they summoned the god and asked his help. As soon as the oracle was possessed, the drums stopped, and he uttered a standard formula, saying, Karna is here. He began by mentioning his guru Shiva and then each of his temple servants, drummer, priest, messenger, and vizier. He has special ritual names for each of them that are only used in this context. Whenever any of the old Whenever any of the local gods possess their oracles, they always begin by enumerating the clan names of those present. As I see it, this is a way of ritually establishing the complex agency that the god is articulating. After acknowledging that all the members of the community are there, all of the clans are there. After acknowledging those present in this way, Karna says, I have nothing. This is because he's a yogi, a world renouncer with no possessions. <clears throat> also typical was... Karna's complaint that uh, people don't worship him as much as they used to, and therefore he has become weak. He says, hey, vizier, you don't worship me as you used to, so how can I have enough power to stop this rain? These days, everyone does as they please. They don't consult me anymore. That's why there is this difficulty. No rain. People don't believe in me anymore. Too much rain. Like many gods in the area, Karna bemoans his subject's steadily decreasing faith, and the fact that they do not consult him as often as before, nor by implication do they take his advice. This is consistent with my thesis, which is that the god represents the community and expresses its collective intentions as the political and economic foundations that gave rise to this system of divine kingship are progressively weakened by what one might call modernization. The divine king's powers diminish, and they regularly bemoan this fact through their oracles. Also important is the oracle's statement that the excessive rain is a punishment for disunity. And although he offers a solution, it is only temporary. For a long-term solution of their problem, he says, they must negotiate. At the very least, they must approach him, approach him jointly. The crucial line is this, quoting the god now, who, as you notice, speaks chaste Hindi and not dialect. <clears throat> You've come alone. I can't forgive you now. I will only do so when a crowd has gathered, and then I will forgive all of you at the same time. Tomorrow and the next day I will stop the rain, but then you must gather together for the meeting. If I don't stop the rain, then you probably can't even have a meeting. Later he says, Tomorrow at sunrise I will acquaint you with my power. After that you must summon all the people, all of the people, and gather them all here for a meeting. My second illustration of how oracles articulate the collected intentions of the community occurred near the beginning of my fieldwork in this region in 1994. I had heard of a place when I was working on that book where they worshipped Duryodhana, and this is as absurd as if they were to tell you there was some obscure valley in Switzerland where everyone was worshipping the devil. Uh, well, it turns out that there is such a valley in Uttarakhand. There's probably such a valley in Switzerland, too. Um, and I couldn't believe it, and neither could most of my Hindu friends. But it turned out to be true. So I visited the village for the first time in 93, and went straight to the reigning deity's impressive temple, Duryodhana's temple, where a festival was taking place. 
I discovered that for many of the older people, he was indeed Duryodhana, an arch-villain of the Mahabharata, and regarded throughout India as a veritable incarnation of evil. Indeed, his name was even carved oh, in the temple wall. There's the temple. Fantastic place. And there it is. It says, Harijun and Durijodhan. But a second, younger group uh, insisted that this was all false. He was not Duryodhana, and he never had been. He was Someshvara, a form of Shiva, and those who called him Duryodhana were nothing other than ignorant hillbillies. I have written extensively about this dispute elsewhere, and I haven't time to tell you all about this interesting conflict over the identity of the god. I simply want to stress that at the time of my visit, the dispute was tearing the community apart, and there were serious threats of violence from both sides. During the spring festival, the god returned from a brief tour to some nearby villages and was ritually welcomed home. And then he possessed his oracle as is customary. Now, this is a very warlike god, and if I were to tell you about his characteristics, it's fascinating. He's really tough, bloodthirsty, macho guy. And this is his oracle collecting ritual axes from the men there, and he's, he's shouting, he's incarnating this militant, macho, violent, aggressive, masculine kind of thing as he collects slides from uh, axes from all of the men assembled there. I found it particularly eerie when the oracle, as soon as he was possessed, leaned on a kind of metal staff, perhaps it was to think of the death of Duryodhana here, you South Asianists, leaned on a metal staff, perhaps it was broke, uh, his broken sword, to support himself. Recall that Duryodhana's thighs were broken in his final combat with Bhima, and the oracle interspersed his dialogue with an exclamation, ah, ah, as if he were in pain. Here he's speaking to his vizier. As I noted already, the background to this exchange was the dispute over the god's identity, and the god himself seemed perplexed and ambivalent. On the one hand, he acknowledged that times are changing and that he would change with them. But on the other hand, he insisted that people should not forget who he was, that they should not give up too many of their old customs. During the god's exchange with his vizier Sundar Singh, he said, quote, The people are becoming educated. I will accept whatever you do and say. Keep your old traditions, keep them. But times are changing, and I'll change with them. It would be best for you to join with the others, to make an alliance. But you two sides are always quarreling, you won't listen to each other. This new generation has dishonored me. Everyone has their own opinion. At one point the vizier interjected, Musician, messenger, watchman, priest, people. Badkitani chokidar pujari janta. If we, if we are separate from you, where is our place? We follow you. To which the god replied, Stay within your limits, follow my orders, and all will be well. Keep your mariada, keep your honor. Don't slip from your old traditions. Let them slip instead. What makes this case so interesting is that the oracle, the person who, according to my theory, articulates the collective intentions of the community, was so ambivalent. He had a split personality. He did not know who he was because at that point the community did not know who he was. They too were split. But despite this, or perhaps because of it, the theme of social and cultural unity was central to the speech of both the god and his vizier. 
Both of them emphasize the common descent of the people and their unification through worshipping the god. Speaking through his oracle, the god complained that too many people had their own opinion, and this was tantamount to dishonoring him. Above all, he urged his vizier to ensure that the two sides make an alliance, implying that only then would the rainfall be appropriate. But because the community was polarized, he could not make a final decision. Uh, he could only urge the two sides to unite. The third example is Poku Devita. Now, as I said earlier, Poku Devita is, has no territorial claims. He's free to wander, and he wanders this vast area as far as Kinnor. He formerly was a demon. He has very strong associations with death, cursing, tamas, and he's very fierce, as shown by his mantra uh, here in my translation. Half God, half death, the ghostly one, say his spell seven times, the staff of thorny limbs, breaker of others' spells, king of the three worlds, he breaks trees with his club, he has a staff of timru wood, he is a sharp seed that can't be bound in clothes or hand, tear the hearer's ears, gouge the looker's eyes, protect your own land, consume the lands of others, salutations to you. So the temple is located above the cremation ground. When the priests worship the Murti, they do it behind their back. The idea is that if you look at the Murti, you'll die. Uh, and as one informant put it when I first went there, quote, Poku is the watchman of the god of death, Yama. All roads to hell start from his temple. No one goes inside. They are too frightened. Once a priest went there trying to see what was inside, and he disappeared. Later they found his body floating in the river. That's why Yama put Poku here, to guide the path to hell. Um, so he's called, he is also known as a god of justice. There's lots of cursing and revenge which take place in his temple. Uh, when, you, when you spend time down there, I'll be sitting with my friend, the, the oracle, and somebody will come along and say, Dinner time! Which means that some pilgrims have come with some goats, and we're all going to have a big feast, uh, etc. So, now I want to give you a first example of his speech. This is during a failed ritual. And it's, again, it's a long and complicated story. Basically, joint family, the younger wife accuses the older wife of the brothers. There's an old couple, and there are two sons, and two sons' wives. So the wife of son number two comes and says, the wife of son number one has been sleeping with the old man. And wife number one says, goes to the temple of Poku, and says, if I've been sleeping with that 80-year-old man, you can strike me dead here. But if, my, if that bitch of a sister-in-law of mine has falsely accused me, get her. So it's a, she does a classical curse. Uh, there's lots of calamities. The goat dies, the sheep dies, the cow dies, the dog dies. Uh, the parents get kicked out of the house. The older wife refuses to apologize, and all this escalates and escalates. So then Kitab saying, my friend is called to go to the village and settle it. But he couldn't. Now part of the collective, the, the ideology of the absence there is it was fascinating. He was like a detective because every night, we were there for about three days and once or twice a day he would come to me and say, I've got it figured out. This is what really happened. And he would tell me his theory. He was like a detective. And then the next day or six hours later he'd come to me and say, no, I've got it wrong. You know. So he's constantly trying to work out what the sequence of events was and whispering into my ear, and then finally, when he's worked it out, he, then he goes into trance and pronounces it. So, another example of the ideology of absence belied by his actual practice. Um, we returned, but in any case, up in the village, he couldn't settle the, 
dispute. So in the end, there was like 20 people going, this is a very, very, very remote village. We go over the pass, we go down to the road to catch the bus into town, and there's all these people, goats, sacrifice, anthropologist, his student, you know, all this whole 20 people in the back of a truck to go down to the temple and finally settle this. Um, and that's a long, long transcription. All I can do is give you some of the excerpts from this event. First, the Poku's subordinate god, a sort of minor god, speaks. And he says, Now all of you have come to my place, and I am with the innocent. The whole world is the same to me. All five fingers are alike. But watch out for my champion, Poku. He is very strict. You must reach an agreement amongst yourselves. Solve your problems internally, and the curse will disappear. The god asks the pilgrims to state their demand, but they demur and begin to argue with each other. Shortly after that, the much fiercer deity, Poku, possesses his oracle, and very threateningly he says, You have plunged daggers into each other's stomachs. Otherwise, why would you be here? You must compromise, or I will afflict you. When this trouble started, you took my name, right? Because the, the woman came down to the temple and said, If I slept with that old man, strike me dead. Uh, you must, uh, when this trouble started, you took my name, and I have spared you until now. But if you do not compromise, you will certainly suffer. The pilgrims have brought a goat. The god will not accept the goat until they agree amongst themselves. That gets more complicated. I'm running out of time. But basically, it goes on and on. It's a very long session. And these themes of unity are stressed over and over and over. Uh, finally, at the end, the older wife never did apologize. This was the crux of the matter. They couldn't unify because everything was settled, but the younger wife was demanding that that older wife apologize for making the false accusation. And she wouldn't apologize. Uh, and in the end, unity was not achieved. Everyone went home. The Mali was disappointed, and it showed on his face. He had thought that he would solve this quarrel once and for all. There would be a celebration and a generous fee for him. But instead, everything ended in disarray. What to do? We unrolled our sleeping mats, ate and drank copiously, and spent the evening watching Sholei on his brand new television <laughs> What does this failed ritual tell us about complex agency? Everyone in this region, gods and people alike, speaks a moral language of unanimity, compromise, solidarity, and honor. When the pilgrims arrived at the temple, the first thing the gods said to them was that they should reach an agreement amongst themselves or face the consequences. Throughout the session, he told them over and over that they should compromise. And so on and so forth, there's much of this. Such, these moral ideas were joined to supernatural threats, which are quite evident in the oracle's speech. Poku constantly threatened to afflict, punish, and curse the wrongdoers, to lay them flat. But none of this worked because the elder wife refused to apologize. She refused even to touch the god's sacred objects. And so the god was left internally, literally, speechless, unable to pronounce his dreaded judgment. Final case. Now, the final case, you have to understand the background. There's a Chot festival every year. There's a certain festival which takes place, Bodo Chot. And the Mali of Poku, in the middle of the night, he goes down to the riverside. He, he wraps himself in a leopard skin. He has these teeth, these iron teeth. He goes down to the cremation ground. And he goes on a journey to the Yamaloka. And he sees what will happen for the next year. He sees who's going to live, who's going to die, how will the crops be, what will the politics be. And then he comes back at about 4 a.m. There's lots of rituals. There are fantastic ballads that are being sung and so forth. But at 4 in the morning, he comes back. He sits in the temple, and he tells the future. 
Uh, and of course, everyone is really excited. All, all the men, all the clan leaders want to hear this. Um, and right, so that's and I was fortunate enough to be able to attend, and you'll see it. Um, so that is the festival side. Now the political side is there are two towns. Uh, the, the, there's a subdistrict headquarters now in Porola. They're going to create a new district capital, and Porola wanted to have it, and Butacote wanted to have it. Two different towns. Butacote got it. The people in Porola near this village are furious. They didn't get their district headquarters. They have a hotel. There's protests every day. The bazaar is shut down. Speeches, blah blah blah, all of that stuff, because people are really angry. Um, and suddenly, after all of this protest, the CM, the chief minister of the state, was toppled. Suddenly. And I thought, reading the newspaper, I thought he had been toppled because of internal political factions. But there's a different story on the streets of Parola. Streets of Parola, the, on the 18th of December, 2011, the headline says, Now the God will see two matters in the capital. Action committee ready to seek the help of Poku Devta. Abdevta Sulunchayenge Mukyalyakan Mamala. So the rumor was that the committee had gone to his temple to ask him to curse the chief minister and see if it worked. Um, and the rumor was that during his annual speech, he had actually prophesied the fall of the chief minister. So I'll summarize what he said. First of all, you should not fight with each other. You must stay united. Second, the rice harvest will be small but the wheat harvest will be good. You must keep your promises to your divine king. If you don't obey him and things don't work out, well, don't blame me. The rice harvest will be weak, but the wheat harvest will be sufficient. The Kanaka clan will be fine. But these days there is much danger in politics, so do not quarrel amongst yourselves. There will be much rain and many storms, <clears throat> but I have the power to minimize them. The god went on to talk about who would live and who would die, and I could tell you a very interesting story about that, because it proved true the next day. But the point is that it was only this one rather vague phrase, these days there is much danger in politics, so do not quarrel amongst yourselves, which was interpreted as referring to the fall from power of the chief minister. Overall, the theme of collective solidarity is once again prominent. In fact, the very first words out of the god's mouth are nothing other than a command to stay unified. Beyond that, ideas of unity are implicit in the ritual context. That is, the fact that senior men from all the clans assemble to hear the god's pronouncement. The unity of the kingdom is the basis of the god's power, the guarantor of his authority. I would argue that precisely because the entire divine kingdom is represented in this way, therefore the god's prediction is clear and unambivalent. <clears throat> Let me now summarize my argument. As I pointed out, the central task of my book is to explain the traditional polity of the Ruvayan region and describe how it changes and adapts to one, what one might call modernity. So a lot of the other chapters will have to do with the way the ritual changes, the way that the old uh, practices of feuding have changed and become less violent, more settlement through uh, talk rather than cutting heads. They're actually headhunting, had traditions of headhunting up there. Um, in this chapter, so and so, that will be the topic, to talk about this traditional political form and how it changes over time. One of my central arguments is that the divine kings of the region represent the collective agency of the population. 
In this chapter, I advance my hypothesis by looking in detail at forms of divine speech. My central question is, who speaks when the God speaks? Now, some of our colleagues would suggest that we should simply take the natives at their word and agree that it's the God who speaks. But I said that I was unhappy with that answer for a number of reasons. Perhaps the most important reason is that what I have called the ideology of absence is often contravened, and everyone knows it. There is lots of evidence that oracles often speak with their own voice rather than that of the God, and even the oracles admit this privately. For most of this talk, I focused on oracular speech in the Ravine. I argued that here, local gods express the collective intentions of the community, or at least its collective solidarity. In the first example, the divine king, Raja Karan, refused to deal with the problem of excessive rain until the entire community, which was locked in a bitter dispute, joined together. He gave them some slight relief, but he said he would only solve the problem once they had settled their dispute. The second example concerned a god whose very identity was the subject of dispute between two factions in the village. Here, too, the disunity of his subjects was the god's central theme, and he promised to adjudicate their dispute, but only after they had joined together. In the third example, the god Poku's attempt to solve a family quarrel failed, because the disputing parties would not compromise. But language and many of the practices associated with this ritual clearly showed that the god would indeed have been able to adjudicate the problem if only the disputing parties had first solved it internally. In the final example, the community was overwhelmingly opposed to a recent decision of the chief minister of the state. When he was toppled from office, it was widely assumed that the local deity was responsible. This case clearly shows how powerful deities are regarded as the vox populi, the voice of the community. Oddly enough, it reminds me very much of Latour's characterization of Hobbes' Leviathan. I quote, On what does the Leviathan depend? On the calculation of human atoms that leads to the contract that decides on the irreversible composition of the strength of all in the hands of a single one. In what does this strength consist? In the authorization granted by all naked citizens to a single one to speak in their name. Who is acting when that one acts? We are. We, who have definitely delegated our power to him. The Republic is a paradoxical artificial creature composed of citizens united only by the authorization given to one of them to represent them all. Does the sovereign speak in his own name or in the name of those who empower him? This is an insoluble question with which modern political philosophy will grapple endlessly. It is indeed the sovereign who speaks, but it is the citizens who are speaking through him. He becomes their spokesperson, their persona, their personification. He translates them, therefore he may betray them. They empower him, therefore they may impeach him. The Leviathan is made up only of citizens' calculations, agreements, and disputes. In short, it is made up of nothing but social relations. Or rather, thanks to Hobbes and his successors, we are beginning to understand what is meant by social relations, powers, forces, and societies. As we say in Germany, thank you for your attention. Thank you.